This episode is sponsored by Code Chrysalis, Tokyo's number one coding bootcamp. See what a Code Chrysalis education can do for your future. Change your life and learn how to code. All right. Welcome, everyone, to Tokyo Speaks. We're back. Had a short hiatus. And, uh, yeah, it was a good time. I usually take a break around this, uh, mid-December and just, you know, chill out, unwind, maybe read a few books, do some running. But, yeah, as doing this as a, you know, I'm like a one-man show here. I, I always like to take a break towards the end of the year. Happy New Year. If you're new to Tokyo Speaks, this is your first time listening. This is a podcast that focuses on the international community and all the great and amazing things that people are doing here. Uh, we talk about their passions, their work, um, hobbies sometimes, uh, just pretty much any and everything. We want to introduce you to various perspectives um, from mainly expats, but also Japanese as well. So, um, it's you know, it's an international community, and I try to uh, have as many interesting Japanese guests as well. So, yeah, that's what Tokyo Speaks is about, right? Um, and if you remember, I think this is about two years ago now, around this time, beginning of the new year, I said that I would start to uh, have more women voices on the podcast. And I, I kind of, you know, secretly, I didn't really talk about this a lot, but I had a quota um, that I wanted to get to, which was 50%. And I think at the time, I probably only had about uh, maybe a little less than 20% or around 20% of my guests were women. And I decided to say, hey, you know, I know a lot of women doing amazing things. And, you know, I'm going to have them on. So I, you know, went out to events and different type of functions and, you know, started doing more research. And, and yeah, I, I basically, long story short, I got to that quota now. I'm probably a little over 50% of my guests have been women. Uh, I'm all about that. I'm not ashamed of it. And uh, I'm going to continue. I'm going to continue with more women voices. And today, today, first episode of the year, I'm going to be highlighting another woman who's done amazing things here in Japan. You know, I like to, I really like featuring people who've been here 15, 20 plus years because they have so much um, experience uh, personally and professionally. And it is my pleasure to have this guest on and I'm going to let her introduce herself right now. <laughs> um, my name is Jackie Steele. Um, I'm uh, a longtime Japan resident, so I, I guess I arrived in 1997. And uh, I'm originally from Canada, from the suburbs of Vancouver. And uh, I've been in sort of, I guess, uh, feminist law reform research and advocacy 
through participatory research and, of course, through uh, as a Japanese, uh, as a political scientist within the Japanese uh, national university system for the last, I guess, 10 years. And currently, uh, in the last two years, I decided to, to start sort of stepping a little bit out of academia and to pivot to share the expertise um, that I think could maybe enrich the conversation from academics and from public policy, from, you know, studies on democracy and uh, race, gender, queer identities, LGBTQ inclusion, disability, um, how we think about accessibility in Japan and also elsewhere, and then thinking about that intersectionally um, so that I could bring that to the uh, DNI space in Japan uh, so more the corporate side of organizational change. And so I founded a company that's called Enjoy Diversity and Innovation Consulting. So I guess that makes me the CEO and founder. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I wanted to give you a shout out because, of course, uh, I, I'm sort of spent a lot of my time in Inaka, Japan. Mm-hmm. So I've only really been paying attention to sort of the expat international world in Japan for the last three years. Okay. And I found your podcast and I was like, oh my goodness, I need to meet this person. And uh, and I was so impressed and like inspired by what you were telling me about this this quota you'd said on, <laughs> on diversity for your podcast and how you attained it in like under like a year and a half. Yeah. You, you just like, you just leadership from, you know, like go, like change agents now and yes. so um i was like so grateful to have you join the enjoy thought partner network which is trying to bring together um you know people who are standing up and being change agents for diversity and women's leadership and um and thank you for for serving on this panel i organized i guess yes. back in gosh that june? was yeah june okay. for the global summit and yes. so enjoy put out that sort of uh, panel on the topic of diversifying the faces of inclusive leadership and and you got to talk about and i really wanted to to have you feature that what you had done for Tokyo Speaks mm. on both like race and gender, you know, fostering that inclusion in your speakers list. Because mm. we see it's such a challenge, particularly in Japan. Yeah. And but when there's a will, there's a way. Exactly. And that's what we see in, you know, as political scientists, when there's a will and there's commitment from the top, the implementation is just secondary and you can figure those pieces out. Mm. But you need real political will and a will to implement through to practices and I was just so impressed when you, <laughs> you were like I have a quota and I'm going to realize it and, and then you came back to me and you're like I hit my quota we're done I, I hit my yes. I did it I achieved right you, you'd, you'd achieved it so that's awesome I guess sometimes I, I, I look at it like oh it's not a huge deal I really am about the mindset um, um, and, and that's something that not having the mindset is, is not just exclusive to, to me or, or any one individual I think if other people adopt that mindset in different areas, different fields, um, it can um, create great things. Uh, and inspire the change yeah. in other men, right, yeah. to to be leaders in this way. And I yeah. think I'm all all for that and work with a lot of different men who are absolutely willing to show up for mm. diversity in women. And, and we need to role model and sort of feature that too, right, in a really intensive and intentional way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so talk about uh, some of the things you do uh, with Enjoy. 
Um, so Enjoy is sort of establishing, and I'm, as I said, I, I, I launched full-time. I left my full-time position in academia only, you know, this past March that I, I formally resigned from the graduate law faculty, the grad law school at um, Nagoya University, mm-hmm. um, and had been at the University of Tokyo for six years before that, uh, seven years before that, um, and was at Tohoku before that, um, uh, doing research. So it's been a slow journey. Um, the last two years I finally sort of made the mindset shift, to say, okay, I'm going to think about bridging the gap to bring these different sort of paradigms and ideas around diversity and about democratization and about how to build sort of horizontal power relations across mm. different social groups and, and within structures and to think about how you would share that with the corporate space. Mm. Um, I've been within research. I've been within social movements, social justice movements. I've been within NGO side. Um, I've worked with parliamentarians and policymakers, um, but I've not actually worked with corporates directly. And so that's a new space for me to think about how to, to bring those ideas across. Um, so, um, what we're focusing on really is to think about, um, one of the core brand pillars, I would say, and, and sort of values, uh, and it's a value, but it's also a praxis, a practice, is having intersectionality or intersectional thinking and intersectional solidarity building across multiple social groups concurrently. Because from my perspective as a sort of political scientist from a, thinking about democratization, you can't fix one part of the democracy only and think that you'll fix imbalanced power relationships across the whole democracy. You, there's The imbalance of power relationships is sort of manifesting in multiple ways across various social group dynamics. So to think that we're just going to focus on, say, gender mm. and women without tackling race, without tackling, you know, stereotypes around abilities mm. and disability and accessibility or um, approaches to LGBTQ inclusion – we we need to think about those things holistically across the ecosystem and across the democracy in the democratic and the corporate space. So intersectional intersectionality is a core um, sort of praxis of learning from across multiple social groups and learning and building empathy and solidarity across mm. those differences. So the name enjoy comes from that. It, gotcha. it literally means. Um, so I take the n in go n for the Japanese like. Um, connection or faded faded connection mm-hmm. and deep connection i guess go in and relation of trust um in that sense and then the i is or enjoy e <laughs> the e i guess i should say the e is um is for the character for the word uh, difference sai no e and the sai no e kanji is really not sort of a it's not an easy difference concept. It's a little bit of a, ah, oh, makes you uncomfortable difference concept. Okay. And so the goal is to say we can actually build Gwen across differences that maybe on first take make us feel a little bit uncomfortable and that we, we're out of our comfort zone. But but through empathy building and trust building, you can build a solidarity and you can build team building and uh, really effective possibilities for innovation. So that's the sort of the name around enjoy. And then you know, I sort of decided that um, while most um, consulting firms talk about diversity and inclusion, and I initially started with that framework, but I'm as a political scientist, I have studied parliaments worldwide that systematically exclude, you know, representation of women, people with disabilities, 
racialized minorities, queer communities, mm-hmm. um, people who are immigrants, people who are newcomers, people who are single parents, like the exclusions across parliamentary democracies and political parties and the way that political parties don't recruit a diversity of candidates across all of those areas. I was looking at how the concept of inclusion and democratic inclusion, we kept failing. Like, you know, so-called advanced democracies were never we're never hitting full democratic inclusion and representation across those power imbalances. And so the concept of sort of inclusion for me feels very almost empty and mm. it, it tends toward in some ways a tokenism. Performative. That doesn't actually change the power relations in the organism and in the organization. And for me, it's really about changing the power relations across the whole organization and the ecosystem so mm. that you can get more horizontal, you know, respect for each other and equality. Um, and then you can really bring out each individual's, like, you know, total, you know, genius. And then each individual brings that forward. But to get to that baseline egalitarian sort of horizontality, um, I felt like democracy and innovation and diversity go together as a driver mm. of progress and of a driver of innovative thinking, of sustainability, of having systems that honor really the full radical individuality that we as humans in our societies can bring to the table. And I think that's what corporations are, are thirsting for. They want sort of the innovation sustainably developed and, they, and, and diversity has shown to be a driver, but it has to be empowered within the company in a way that goes beyond token inclusion. And so going beyond token inclusion for me meant then we talk a little bit more about, you know, diversity and innovation within a concept of sort of intersectionality and sort of that democratic horizontality, mm. I guess, are the pillars around what we're, we're, we're bringing as, a, as a, a driving force for how organizations could unleash, I think, more creativity, more innovation and more competitive edge. And the output is well-being yeah. for all those individuals who get to show up with their genius and feel honored and feel a sense of dignity and being recognized for the differences they bring to the table that enrich the conversation and enrich the competition of ideas in those in those workplaces. Great, great. Uh, well, you know, we, we're gonna we're gonna get back into uh, all this great work that you've done. Um, uh, first, I, I want to take a step back here and talk about a little bit where you come from. Uh, okay. Yeah. So um, I was actually born in Calgary, Alberta, in Canada, but we moved when I was three. So my experience really is more as a being sort of born and ra- raised in British Columbia, uh, beautiful BC. British Columbia has some of the most amazing, uh, obviously, nature. Um, it's got Whistler Blackcomb as a ski resort with amazing skiing. It's got the mountains, of course. You know, you can go five hours into the interior of BC and find wine country and and again, more skiing and beautiful lakes. And so where I grew up, um, yeah, fairly uh, fairly commonplace, I think, middle class upbringing. My parents were teachers by training, so education was always very important. Mm. You know, my dad always said we would go to university if he had to sit beside us every single day in class. <laughs> <laughs> we would be going to university, and that was not up for debate, um, because they both really thought it was sort of the key to giving yourself choices and expanding your possibilities. So very much... Um, strong parental uh, vision around getting education and also music, music being really a driver of our family, our family's uh, sense of 
creativity and and uh, hobbies gotcha. together. So they kind of set the tone for you, and then you you didn't really go, or you didn't deviate from that. You just, you know, education, academia, and, and sports. Actually, sports oh, yeah. were also well, really big for my yeah. dad, okay. and uh, he had three daughters, and uh, sports was really important and play okay. play and sports and work-life balance and quality of life was really important to my dad and my mother um, and so they worked as a really excellent team together I think in building out quality of life mm-hmm. and so yeah my dad would go into work really early like leaving at five thirty-six in the morning so he'd be home by 2 30 3 o'clock so that he could take us to you know softball practice and take us to piano lessons and be really engaged um in coaching our, our softball teams and and helping us with our homework and so I really had strong uh, I think strong I guess upbringing of a sort of really uh, gender equal sort of engaged parenting co-parenting mm-hmm. really engaged co-parenting let's put it that way they both had their carved out roles of what they did and what they didn't do and that kind of sometimes that comforted certainly gender roles um, mm. but they both carved it out in a way that worked for them. And they were both really engaged parents, which for me has been a really core value now for me, uh, having a family, um, having two kids, um, having that really engaged uh, co-parenting and life partnership gotcha. uh, is also really core. And I, I realize now in retrospect that you've asked the question, I realize how much I take that from my own parents' <laughs> um, upbringing. And so music and languages and cross-cultural understanding were things that were central to our family family um, experience in uh in a little neighborhood called Delta, British Columbia, uh, which is on the outskirts of Vancouver. Gotcha. I've never been anywhere near Canada. So, yeah. <laughs> Please go. I, I know. <laughs> I heard so many great things about it. Uh, so, yeah, you know, a question that you've probably been asked a hundred times, how did you get into, you know, J- Japan, Japanese culture and, yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> it's always a bit of a interesting yet awkward question to answer. I... I started out, uh, my dad really was keen on French, and so we we were encouraged to do French immersion, and there was a French immersion program in our elementary school. So I did French immersion, and then, and I really enjoyed learning a second language, and then learning about, you know, this language lives in the world, like real time. You can go and talk to people in this other language. So I went to Quebec, and and we had a family vacation. So you then you realize there's this whole other living you know, culture. So I wanted to learn another language. Hmm. And at my high school, um, you know, Delta and British Columbia and Vancouver was kind of like the hot destination for Japanese tourism. Okay. Um, It was like supernatural BC and, of course, all of the beautiful nature. And there would be these, you know, tours that would come in. They'd land in Vancouver. They'd see Stanley Park. They would go to the Rockies and then they would fly to, you know, whatever. And they would do these crazy like cross Canada tours in five days and and cover these tremendous, you know, um, Niagara Falls and whatnot. And so Japanese language became more important to the British Columbia economy. And one of my high school students, uh, my high school, sorry, uh, teachers, he had lived in Japan. He was a, a China scholar. And then he'd lived in Japan and was teaching Chinese history, and he learned Japanese in the five years he was here. So he was fluent in Chinese and in Japanese, and he was like a, a white Canadian, <laughs> like average man, high school teacher, but obviously not so average to have all of these amazing, um, like extra language skills. So he created a course in Japanese, uh, beginner Japanese language in high school. So I took three years, and uh, I was 
in love with the kanji. I just thought the aesthetics and the the pictograms for me it was like so different from you know boring letters, right? Like it's exactly. little pictures and it's this whole art and you look at the you know the calligraphy versions of the characters and it was gorgeous. And he would explain every single part of the kanji. And then give you the history of it. Mm. And how is it different from the Chinese version today? And so it was just this deep dive that I thought was fascinating. So that really I just wanted to learn more about and learn to, to delve into those characters. And then I also was attracted in a, in a counter sort of way because I just thought it was so odd that we were having to learn that girls and boys couldn't speak the language the same way <laughs> and that if you were a girl you needed to use this term and so you would have to say like watashi or watakushi mm. and you would speak in a more feminine voice yeah. and so he would bring and teach all of these sort of like culturally nuances, sort of rooted yeah. nuances um of what he'd seen uh, as it was, you know, and then he would talk about, you know, boys can say boku or ore or, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. and so I just thought how, like, how fascinating, but also unfair and like <laughs> totally unegalitarian yeah. that, that the language is so performatively gender rolling, mm -hmm. like women into these kind of more subservient, docile, polite language, mm. pa language patterns. Yep. And that it's so hard to then practice different kinds of femininity within the constraints of that linguistic formulaic code. So that fascinated me as a, as a young tomboyish kind of a sporty, you know, my, my dad had us doing soccer and softball and every sport under the sun. So you get pushback as a girl being told that girls can't do sports and girls can't throw a ball and girls are crappy at sports. So you don't want them on your <laughs> sports team in, in gym class. Right. And that was not my experience. I had a dad who totally coached us to be high performing in sports and have athletics as a as a thing and to feel a sense of strength in our bodies. Mm. So I as a, I think as a young girl. I just, I really already kind of understood the unfairness of gender inequality in the way that I was being told that as a girl, you can't do this and you're not good at this because of the body you're born into and that it happens to be female. And I was like, that's just so arbitrary. Yeah. And it's just not evidence-based either because <laughs> <laughs> if you have a dad who coaches you in all these sports, I can like... I can totally kick the asses of these boys in terms of like the softball, right? Like this, yeah. I'm doing I'm doing competitive sports. So, I think that, and then learning that in high school, and and being getting all that cultural background from this teacher, as a young sort of trying to figure out what it means to be a, you know, I was also a cheerleader, which was kind of odd, <laughs> but the cheerleading team, you know, you had to do you know had to do acrobatics and yeah. you had to be thrown up in the air, so yeah. you had to be really strong yeah. to be yeah. able to carry those athletics, yeah. really right, like. Yeah. It was a sport and we would compete against teams in the United States because it was really like taken seriously as a sport. Mm. So I just sort of realized that uh, I didn't understand. And I think in part of my journey of making sense of all the ways in which people tell you, you can't do this because you're a girl mm. and you're not going to be good at that because you're a girl when it doesn't jive with your own reality and experience personally. And then with, you know, with Japanese culture and the way I was learning it and the language at high school. And then I'm learning about this whole other culture and how they're sort of gender stereotyping, stereotyping their women through the cultural practices. And I found that fascinating. And I think, you know, if you can then guess that when I went off to university, I was like, I need to study politics. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. need to, I need to understand these, these political games yeah. and these power relations that are so toxic yeah. and unfair. And that's a, you know, that's a very interesting way to be drawn into the culture right 
I, I mean, mostly time, you know, we hear, you know, anime and <laughs> manga. Uh, manga <laughs> and uh, what else? What else is there? Karate. Yeah. Um, for me, it was. It was Ikebana? No. <laughs> no, it wasn't Ikebana for me. <laughs> um, for me, it was just the language. Um, just, you know, long story short, just being in an environment in New York City where uh, one of my uh, jobs I had most of the people there could speak another language. So mm. the language drew me in, just not mm. specifically Japanese language, but just wanting to n- be bilingual. Have another language. Yeah. Um, but for you to be drawn into something so deep and <laughs> political, like you said, so yeah, that's that's inter- the first time. I'm- I think it blew my mind in many ways because the the counter messaging I was getting from my own parents was, we have three daughters. You're going to go to university and you're going to do whatever you want to do. And we're going to make sure that you're supported and you can do whatever you want. So you you don't have to put constraints on yourself because you're a girl. Mm-hmm. And so then to realize that that's, that's the sort of experience that I'm getting in my home culture. You get the sort of teasing from the boys at school who still are doing, you know, in some ways carry over gender politics that play out between girls and boys in elementary school and, and junior and senior. Mm-hmm. And then you have a whole other culture being taught in a very highly gendered way that was... And I mean, it wasn't un, it wasn't unrepresentative of Japanese culture. It was, I mean, in my experience of been being here twenty two years, it was fairly accurate actually. Mm. Um, but to get all that nuance, like made in grade ten, yeah, and I found that <laughs> like fascinating. So I was drawn in by both like Japan is, ooh, so fascinating with the kanji, and I want to learn more. But oh my god, that feels like that kanji is like the description of why they do the kanji that way is so misogynistic. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, why does that have to be the, you know, three women kanji is like, you know, noisy and boisterous and like, you know, disagreeable. You were were so woke (laughs) (laughs) at at an early age. And I think this 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 high school teacher, like what a like what a complete blessing to to stumble across that exception, like really sort of high level anthropological deep dive that yeah. he's giving these to grade 10 <laughs> students who most of, the, most of it is over their head, right? They're just yeah. like, what are you talking? You know, we had to literally, he would have us, he would say, Kiritz, and we'd have to literally, like, stand up. Mm. Like, you know, mm. and then he would say, okay, chaksaki, and then we would be able to sit down. And so he tried to make it a, a lived experience. experience of the language and culture that I thought was really brilliant mm. in retrospect now. Okay, uh, well, yeah. Let's let's fast forward a little bit. All right. So we we know how uh, you got into uh, what drew you to Japan and the culture. Um, so what you came here in 1997. I came here in 1997, <clears throat> but that sort of was, I guess, I had done a French immersion into Montreal and Northern okay. Quebec for my undergrad because I wanted to live in French. Okay. So I went to Montreal. I went to university, and, and I, but I wanted to study in English so that I could stay in my mother tongue but be surrounded by Quebec and French culture, like Francophone culture in, in Quebec. And during that, I so I thought, okay, I'm going to study political science, mm. and but I didn't want to let go of the Japanese studies. Mm. So I, I did a dual degree on political science focusing on Canadian politics and Canadian like constitutionalism and federalism to understand power in institutions and democracy. And then I had the Japanese studies concurrently. And I had to, for my joint honors thesis, I had to pick a topic. Gotcha. And I didn't want to write a topic that was like not bridging the two. So I, of course, 
given my experiences and my sort of that that curiosity about you know what's going on with women's inequality in Japan like what's what's up with that i um i decided my undergraduate thesis would be on a comparison of japanese and canadian constitutionalism and the the sort of constitutional protections for women and okay. gender equality in japan in the japanese in in the japanese constitution and in the canadian constitution and um and then how that was playing out in practice so that kind of allowed me to begin to bridge the Canadian politics analytical tools I was getting through the studies of federalism and constitutionalism and human rights and charter of rights and freedoms, and then look at, okay, how does that iteration of Canadian, how does that, that plays out this way in Canada for Canadian democracy mm-hmm. and Canadian constitutionalism, how does that play out in Japan? And then I could look at the institutional framework and the constitutional framework in Japan to see you know, how does the statecraft and the constitution lay the blueprint for what you as a society, all actors in that, you know, bubble, how do they then implement the promise of the constitution in practice um, through politics, through the economy, through the family, through all of these different institutions? And so that launched that kind of a comparative Japan-Canada conversation around citizenship and diversity and Mm. gender Mm. in that first sort of undergraduate paper I had to write, 60-page something. Um, And I I kind of – I wanted to delve further, but I also wanted to live in Japan and then be immersed in Japan to get my Japanese language skills to be more fluent because I'd been studying it for like seven years but had never been to Japan. Mm. So I applied to go on the JET program. And I applied for specifically the the CIR, the Co- Coordinator for International Relations position, which would allow you to be inserted into a Japanese local government, working in a local government, in Japanese, with your colleagues as just a regular municipal employee, mm. and bringing the, the goal of the, you know, Koksai Koryuin and the, the CIRs is to bring new ideas from your home country to help internationalization within the local bureaucracies. Whoa. And it's, Whoa. it was such an awesome job. Yeah. Like, it was phenomenal from my perspective because, of you know, just studying political science, totally fascinated by political institutions and democracy and then local democracy and, and then doing Japan studies. So I got to go into a Japanese municipal government. I was a, like a shokuin for three years. I was the only foreigner, obviously the only foreign woman in the, in the whole city hall. Um, serving, a, you know, a, a, a city of 40,000 residents in northern Nagano. And that's actually still where I now live. And wow. I've maintained sort of those ties. It's be- it was really became my furusato. Mm. Like, I really consider it my, my I don't, my jika, yeah, if you yeah. will. Um, and so, yeah, 22 years later, I mean, what we, we built courses on human rights for the citizens. We did courses. Wow. I did a little course on gender equality for the citizens. We did cross-cultural, like introducing, mm. we still run an annual Halloween event for children and we mm. run a Hall- uh, a big Easter event, uh, you know, for cross-cultural so that the children are exposed to different facets that are apolitical. <laughs> um, and, but yeah, we, my mayor was one of the most open-minded men and he was like, here, you, you know, you're the fourth CIR in this city. You're the first one from Canada. Please bring your ideas from Canada and share them with your, you know, Kakaricho and Kacho and Bucho and whatever. And we're going to, here's the budget. I've, I've got, like, he carved out a whole budget 
of funds for, for us to develop international Koksai Koryu and Koksaika events and internationalization events for mm. the city to support the residents in being exposed to new ideas. And he was so fabulous. I mean, it was, it was amazing. That sounds amazing. Sounds, you know, knowing what we know of Japan as a whole, it just sounds like it was too easy, <laughs> almost. <laughs> well, to be honest, in in comparison, then there was a lot of. So this is 1997, North, mm. northern Nagano, Shin, okay. Shinshu Nagano. Like we're just a city, forty thousand people back in the day, just nestled in the valley in between Nagano City and Ueda City. Okay. And at the time, it was called Koshokushi, which most Japanese people could never find on a map because it's a gappe, so it's an amalgamated name, and it's hard to write in kanji because mm. it's because it's amalgamated. But then it's since become renamed and amalgamated as Chikuma City um, because it follows the Chikuma River, which is the river of a thousand turns, so Chikuma. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the CIRs, there was a huge influx. The So the Monkasho, the, the Ministry of Education, runs the program. And they recruit 5,000 at the time. There were 5,000 young undergraduate degree holding foreigners. 90% of those individuals were English language teachers. And they were sent across the country to, to go support the junior and senior high schools. And then about 10% of us were like the Japanese speakers. And so we were inserted into local governments, regional governments, town halls, to be functioning all in Japanese and to bring different ideas and function within a Japanese um, workplace context. But Nagano Olympics were on the horizon for 1998. Huge increase in the, in the number of CIRs and ALTs across Nagano Prefecture because we were all then loaned to the Nagano Olympic Committee mm. to volunteer for the Olympics. Um, and, and to be fair, I had a really privileged position in my city because of the mayor's vision. And when I say like... Like political will and tone from the top, hugely important. Of course, in yeah. my experience of uh, what a mayor can accomplish in terms of committing budget, um, and uh, most of the other, often, often a lot of the other CIRs were not given a budget, were not empowered with these institutional systemic level tools to say, go out and do these things, implement these things. Here's your budget. Here's the people who will advise you in your, you know, kokusai koryu kakari. And go work with them and bring your new ideas and, like, implement some different innovative spaces, right? So are you um, talking about, like, uh, CIRs in other cities? In Nagano. Oh, in Nagano. Had not had that kind of support. Wow. And so they were sort of sitting at their desk being expected to do translation all day. Mm. Whereas I was sent out to talk to, for, to talk to the residents, to do courses with the residents, to, you know, bring new ideas, to organize big festivals. We did a big multicultural heritage festival because there was huge multiculturalism in my little city, which I, was, I found fascinating because mm. nobody told me about all the different kinds of immigration that you have in Japan. Mm. And in my Japanese studies degree, no one talked about it. And yet in my lo local community, there was a fairly substantial, um, you know, uh, worker Brazilian uh, worker population. Mm. And there were Indonesians on, you know, the apprenticeship visa status. There were um, Chinese and Filipino and Korean women who were there as um, wives wow. and were integrating in those communities and had the community of the Filipino women. And, and so here I'm like, Japanese, like, culture and citizenship and... There is this multiculturalism at the local level in rural Nagano that yes. no one's talked to me about. And I'm like, so people would say, well, in Canada, you have such diversity. And I would say, 
Yeah, and I'm so impressed that you have like resident Brazilians and Indonesian and Filipino and the Korean and Chinese wives community. I was like, wow. Yeah. But it was not a part of the social imaginary, the social imagination or the social imaginary of Japan. Yes. And so when Japanese people would talk to me, they would give me this very stereotypical only Japanese people live in Japan on a, on a like a race nation kind of stereotype and i'd be like but here in our own city this is the number of local foreign residents who are here and they're like permanent they're not leaving mm. they've immigrated like there's genuine multiculturalism why don't we do a multiculturalism festival and so i realized that the way that diversity was just not being acknowledged as endogenous to japan when multiculturalism was there LGBTQ communities are here, but I would talk about, you know, sex education and I would talk from a from a queer perspective mm. of acknowledging both same sex and different sex relationship possibilities. And so if I went into the school and I gave that talk, people would assume that wasn't endogenous to Japan. It was like only abroad. And so I, I, I found again, I just found this the representations of Japanese-ness being so stereotyped around not talking about the diversity that is here yeah. and that needs to be celebrated and acknowledged and allowed to flourish. And that that sort of, I guess, direct contact at the local Inaka level, um, I think fascinated me to want to then pursue more research on the comparison between Japan and Canada, diversity and how do you bridge the gap around diversity and inclusion in both citizenship and in our democratic institutions, politics, parliaments, but then also in corporations? Um, I'm just curious to like curious about what because you know you said the mayor empowered you to to um, you know bring all these new ideas and stuff. What were the reactions from some of these people when you're talking about diversity and LGBT and all that stuff. Like my experience in Inaka, Japan, was heavy topics. Heavy topics, but of course they were brought in a cross-culturally sort of in a cross-cultural learning mode. Okay. So I could talk about what how we think about those issues and how we talk about those issues in Canada, and then it's a window into how Canada talks about these issues, which is a different lens. Hmm. It's a safe lens. Because in Canada, it's okay for us to talk about it that way and think about things that way in Canada. Um, and then I could ask them, well, how does that play out here? And, and how what? do we observe that here? And how does that, is that an issue here? And then you could, you could, I found, frankly, at the grassroots, there's tremendous open-mindedness. Tremendous open-mindedness in my communities, anyhow, where I've been in both Nagano and in Sendai. Um, I don't find that those communities are closed to those ideas. Um, I, th I see a thirst for learning about those different ideas and about how they play out because I think they're not a lot, they're not spoken about really in the, in the core education system. There's not a lot of resources in the standard, you know, Japanese public education system, which my children are now in. And this is, you know, a gap I feel as a mother that th those, those issues are not sort of a part of the core curriculum. And yet they're so key to building respect for each other in our interpersonal dynamics so that children don't bully each other based on race or based on, you know, gender or based on the fact that you you look like hafu because my children are 
mixed ra- mixed race heritage. Uh, my spouse is a third generation Japanese Canadian. And uh, so my children, you know, show up as being called and labeled constantly, uh, hafu. Mm. Um, whereas in Canada, we would never frame it that way because your race, racial makeup, um, I mean, all Canadians are coming out of a variety of different immigration pathways and track records. And over history, we've had so many pathways of immigration that Canada is all built on immigration. That's not to say we don't have racism. We do. Mm. And there's Mm. different facets of racism and particularly, you know, white settler colonization of indigenous peoples that we are still working through. It's Mm. not, I mean, the reconciliation process is going to be a long journey. Mm. Um, But yeah, you generally blatantly in the way that my, you know, children will be labeled to their face. Mm. You know, and it's like meant to be flattering, but yeah. it, at the same time, you're, you're sort of like, um, where do you, what do you do with that in the classroom? And then what if that becomes the reason why that child gets taxed and, and bullied because they're different? And so when the public education system doesn't deal with any of that or acknowledge the local diversity of the Brazilian, so I was called in to help a Brazilian boy who's this, you know, Six-year-old, seven-year-old, blonde, blonde Brazilian boy whose parents were on the worker visa in my resident city in rural, you know, Nagano. When that child is not, the school system didn't have linguistic supports. The mother didn't speak a lot of, couldn't read Japanese, but could speak Japanese, was probably a quarter Japanese. Um, and three, like, so not not having a lot of her own experience being raised within Japanese language and culture, but had a little bit of Japanese language. So the son was trying to be put into this, you know, rural Japan, Japanese school in Nagano, and the school sends home, and I'm now the mother experiencing it now, copious documentation that comes home from schools, right? Mm -hmm. I've heard about it. All written in very, like, kind of opaque uh, difficult, like Japanese. high context Japanese yeah. with a whole bunch of like aisatsu and then like get to the point of what you need me to actually <laughs> know from this one piece of paper mm-hmm. for my child to know what they bring tomorrow. Like, uh, And so this woman, this mother couldn't read any of the paperwork and the school didn't know how to support except for through giving paper and they were they didn't know how to accommodate a language speaker who could speak Japanese at, at a beginner level as a mother to make sure the son would show up with the right things at school. And the school's reaction was, the mother's not doing her job in making sure the son shows up with the right things. Can you fix the mother, please? And I was <laughs> sort of like, I, that's not really where the conversation needs to start. Yeah. Right? There's just so many things we need to unpack in that right logic of... And the poor kid is then being taxed and bullied because he doesn't show up with the right gym class and outfits for gym class the right day and... And he, I, as the CIR working at City Hall, was asked to deal and try and troubleshoot some of these things. And I was just, there's just so many pieces that if we don't have that baseline education on diversity and yep. in- inclusion and LGBTQ and gender equality in schools, you set up a whole generation. Yeah. Um, and and is- so the adults really have this huge, and local governments have huge responsibility, and they often don't get enough funding from the national government to really meaningfully bring in the supports for cross-cultural education, multicultural supports for Japanese as a second language learning, and then all of those kids that are in these, you know, rural spaces across Japan, the parents are just 
all that burden, that extra responsibility is privatized onto the onto the parents, mm. the immigrant parents, right? Mm. So I think, I mean, I, in some ways I laugh because I, I, I say to my spouse, I'm like, we're that immigrant family that even though I'm a Japanese language speaker, I, mm. I get certain things wrong. Mm-hmm. I, I misread the, and yeah. I send my child with the wrong thing on the wrong day. Or, <laughs> and so I'm like, we're that immigrant family that, you know, that people mock in Canada sometimes because they show up with the wrong stuff or the parent needs translation. Well, my spouse doesn't speak Japanese. So my, me and my daughter end up translating for my spouse. So it's like, if I can't go, then now my daughter has to translate for daddy, right? You know, the things you have to think about as a um, foreigner, expat, it's like, wow. Now now you get it back then when, when you were in your home country and, and people came to... And, and my parents were always educating us so actively and they made sure that they reached out to every single immigrant family mm. yes. in our neighborhoods because it was a middle-class neighborhood but high levels of Chinese Canadians who were really interested in the academic school but then also different you know in Indo-Canadian Pakistani Canadian and so my parents were like we need to be making sure we're <laughs> inviting them and including them and so they were always constantly bringing people into our house to make them feel welcome and to make them to welcome them to the neighborhood and in some ways that was motivated by I think their their own small town Christian upbringing. Okay. Like that's just good civic duty yes. of being a good neighbor. Um, but they also were really just imp- committed to sort of that cross-cultural inclusion. And that's a part of being a good community builder. And they practice that within our family. Um, and we heard, of course, about those those parents. We would hear about the poor, their kids getting bullied. Mm-hmm. And so my parents would let us know. That kid's getting bullied. Can you pay attention to that and make sure you're aware? And if you're seeing things, like, can you? So we would get those kinds of awareness, I think, pieces Mm. from that experience in our home life. Um, And I think that sets the groundwork for, like, yeah, having empathy across difference. That now, I mean, certainly for my 20 years as an immigrant in Japan, and I've never identified as an expat ever in Japan because I've always been in rural Japan where you're just seen as a migrant worker. Okay. You're a migrant worker, but for me, I was like, well, no, I'm really more like an immigrant because mm. I'm thinking in a Canadian logic that, and then Japan doesn't really have formal immigrant receiving policies, but they do have a lot of worker, migrant worker policies. Yes. So all of us are migrant workers. Uh, some are high skilled. Some are brought in on 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 labor, yes. um, you know, and exploitative more conditions. But ultimately, the the legal framing is that we're migrant workers. But because you develop a sense of belonging here. You feel more like an immigrant. Yeah. Um, so that's challenging when it's not It's not necessarily echoed back to you because often as a white woman, uh, Canadian, I'm no matter, you know, on any given day of my 22 years off and on in Japan, the minute you get into your, the minute you're talking to somebody who doesn't know you from your long relations of building Gwen and mm. trust and Shinrai Kanke in Japan, in your own communities, the minute you step out of that community, you're just a gaijin. Mm. And like, why are you here? And when did you come? And why do you speak Japanese? <laughs> when are you going home? Like, when are you kikoku? Like, mm. when are you intending to kikoku, right? Yeah. Like, there's this um, driving assumption in, um, you don't belong here, so why are you here? Mm. And and that's, I mean, that's a sensitivity, of course, that I feel, and with children now being born and raised here, as well as their second generation, if you will, but not recognized as such. They're also now labeled gaijin children. But they're sort of mixed heritage Japanese 
Canadian yeah. half. Yeah. Just, you know, so it's like, but they're, they're great, like their great grandparents were Japanese <laughs> on <laughs> their dad's side. Exactly. So yeah. why do, why are we being called Soto? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, you know, the political scientist in me thinks that's all fascinating. And I yeah. think that's why I went back then and I, 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 I did a stint on Parliament Hill where I, I, I wanted to see the Parliament in action. I wanted to see the House of Commons in action. Mm. And so I, I did a year on, on Parliament Hill studying opposition politics versus government politics and what how, what government parliamentarians do versus what opposition parliamentarians do. And then I went straight back into doing a master's and, and PhD that really would let me bridge, you know, studying constitutionalism power relations across gender, race, queer, uh, you know, disability, intersectional feminist legal theory in my master's and comparing Japan and Canada across patterns of, I guess, democratization and integration of diversity. Wow. 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 So the personal is political. I really yeah. like the feminist credo. Like for me, it's just like it's an everyday lived experience. It's something that I research. It's something that I am doing in political philosophy reading. It's something that my, you know, I navigate as a mom mm. every day. And it's part of my my social justice activism and my commitments to different organizations that I think matter. And even the Can Canadian Chamber of Commerce, I serve on the board and it's a really diversity positive space in the Canadian Chamber of Commerce here. We've got a quota and a diversity <laughs> policy to make sure that our board of governors is always inclusive and diversified across race, gender, queer, uh, disability, and um, and to achieve gender balance is the one where we sort of set some, some targets that we achieved. Um, but that's a new thing that I was able to help the Canadian Chamber in my enjoy DNI consulting hat, and nice. I and I helped to, to you know write the, the policy for the Canadian Chambers, and we were practicing that, and um, but it started with you know our chair um, Neil who who decided he he thought it would be important that we that we not just talk about it, but that we actually implement it and practice it, and then so he you know says Jackie, can you guide us on what kind of a policy we should have? And um, having looked at what, you know, parliaments worldwide are doing on gender quotas and a more broader holistic intersectional view of inclusion on diversity, um, our board, you know, was so committed. All of the men and women were so committed. And um, so, yeah, it's been it's really I think it's it's nice to see when you have these political will and then institutionalization and then you got to practice it because you can't just say the elections are next week we don't have any women candidates oops it's yeah. like you had a whole year <laughs> to go reach out and network with women like you did right yes. you had to go out and say okay where are the interesting excellent kick-ass women that i think i want to feature here yep. well that's the work that political parties need to do that's the work that you know our chamber then was say okay all year long we need to go out and make sure we're networking with in professional women's spaces that are pro-canada <laughs> inter or interested in the japan canada relationship and we need to see about asking them to join the chamber and do they want to serve the chamber and would they like to be a governor and run for election yeah. you can't just drop a bomb with the quota and then ghost everybody yep. and think it's going to happen overnight and of course we've seen with the japanese government the target was supposed to be 2020 30 and they keep floating this target for as long as i've been researching it which is like 20 years there's been too too much talk about this this one quota that the government had but no institutional build out in the holistic practices 
in the ecosystem across so many areas that need to support making that 30% a reality that gets implemented in practice. And now they pushed it back. And yeah, they said, yeah. we're going to maybe hit the 30% quota sometime between 2030 and 2050. <laughs> and you think, don't talk about the quota. Build out the institutional systemic solutions mm. that that affect the whole ecosystem of how gender equality needs to be supported and how diversity needs to be supported. And right there for me is like, that's the work of enjoy. That's what we do. Gotcha. Like, it's the ecosystem design, policies, practices, and generating diversity positive culture as an output. All right, let's uh, take a sponsored break and be right back. Whether you're living in the heart of Tokyo or anywhere in the world, you can learn how to code with Code Chrysalis. If you're a beginner, Foundations and Foundations Light are great intro courses to get you started. And if you want to take your skills to a more advanced level, maybe you're ready for the immersive 12-week coding bootcamp. See the link in the description of this episode to schedule a free consultation. And good luck on your coding journey with Code Chrysalis. All right, so yeah, um... Getting deeper into uh, uh, Jackie's work, and um, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on was, of course, you know, you you, you are a positive representation of of uh, you know um, someone who is not Japanese but is doing great work here in Japan, and you're a woman, kick-ass woman, um, but. When I was looking through your work, one of the things I found that was really, um, uh, I thought was great was that, you know, although you, you, you're, you're about women empowerment, you're not forgetting um, the empowerment of men and the role that they play um, in society and women's liberation. So I'm a, you have the floor. Just <laughs> talk about it. Okay, that's interesting. Um, I think this this comes out of both, I guess, experience um, within, you know, I've worked within Canadian feminist uh, movements uh, for 10 years, I guess, back when I was doing my PhD. I've worked uh, and sort of mobilized within the Quebecois feminist movement. And... At the time, and this is going back to like the you know two thousands, early two thousands, um, I saw a maybe a difference in the way that within the the federal. I mean, Canada's a big country, and so the the you know the Canadian feminist movement and the coalition for equality that we were building across all these different women's organizations across ten provinces and three territories. Um, and all those different demographics of like, how do we build a coalition for equality that's inclusive of you know, not just being a movement led by white Anglophone women living in major cities, mm -hmm. right? Like, mm -hmm. so decentering that and having inclusion of um, certainly Francophone women in Canada, having inclusion of Quebecois feminist movement perspectives, having inclusion of Indigenous women's perspectives, lesbian women's perspectives, Black racialized women's perspectives. So the Coalition for Equality was so core in building that view of intersectionality and practicing it as a movement. And that was key because when I went and studied it in feminist legal theory and critical race studies and did all of that in my master's PhD, 
it came to life because I had lived it and seen it in practice in some ways in the Canadian Feminist Movement Coalition for Equality and how we lobbied Parliament for law reform that would be holistically inclusive across all of those different demographics and have a consensus. You know, this is the consensus across all of these groups for equality. Um, and in the Quebecois feminist movement, I saw it's a smaller, obviously, it's a province. And so it's not all of Canada. It's the Quebecois feminist uh, movement serving, you know, the province of Quebec and what Quebec considers a, a nation state within Canada. And Quebec the Quebec feminist movement had really invested in politics and in political parties. And, you know, they were up to already like 30% women elected to the, the National Assembly in Quebec. So their provincial assembly that they take to be their nation state primary, sort of for those individuals who identify as Quebecois first, the women and the men were working in allyship. They were working in strong allyship around gender equality, around workers' rights, around, you know, protecting, you know, the sort of decent work across unionization of certain sectors. And so seeing that sort of, I think, there's still obviously that was, you know, the feminist movements were still women-led mm -hmm. predominantly, but, but those women had strong male allies who took gender equality to be core to Quebecois democracy and that to achieve Quebecois democracy you needed gender equality and you needed inclusion across these different multicultural spaces to protect the French language as well. Mm -hmm. So I think I saw that role model in a very strong way in the Quebecois feminist movement organizing. And I think coming from a background of having a strong father figure who was an active co-parent who showed up as a parent mm -hmm. in the home, mm -hmm. that was probably one of the striking differences that I see in Japan. Mm -hmm is men are not given time and allowed to be fathers and allowed to be co-parents and allowed to be caregivers a lot of the time. And I guess 20 years ago in, in one of my speeches I gave, I was like 20 years old, right? Like I was, maybe I was, no, I was 20, I guess I was around 22, 23. And I was encouraged to give these, spe these speeches around gender equality and Canadian and Japanese constitutional differences around equality protections. And at one point I sort of went, if men are expected to work until 8 p.m. Yeah. And this is in rural Japan when really, like, you're a civil servant in a local government. Why can't you go home at 5.15 <laughs> when the day ends? Like, yeah. do you really... Is there really this imperative that those local civil servant, my colleagues, that they needed to be kept on the leash? And it was obviously most of my colleagues were men. Um, the women were hired in part-time positions predominantly, and they were kind of the tea ladies, and they were given that very gender-restrictive yes. role mm -hmm. with no career advancement and no permanency and no benefits and and oftentimes working full-time hours still, but not not getting any of the benefits or the upward mobility. So I was seeing these contradictions in, in my experience in Japan and saying, wow, I'm not sure that it's helpful to just sort of talk about women's emancipation and liberation in Japan when, from all intents and purposes, my two years working at City Hall, I didn't think that men were liberated in Japan. And that was just a small microcosm of what I was seeing in a civil service job. But if in the civil service, you can't, follow labor law restrictions and let your people go home at 5.30. Yeah. And the men, by informal culture, and this is all informal culture, right? Mm -hmm. 
that within the men's culture, they're expecting each other that if your cacho hasn't gone home, everyone underneath him can't go home. Yes. Yes. And so it's it's that sort of informal masculinity gender role mm. that first and foremost I started even 20 years ago problematizing and saying we can't just add women and stir and think it's going to change and revolutionize and democratize the system as a whole mm. right mm. and so when you have inegalitarian power relations in one part of the pool Mm. You have inegalitarian power relations in, in all parts of the pool, <laughs> if yes. I take a <laughs> an expression and clean yeah. it up. Yeah. And so those those you know toxic relationships among men mm. of hierarchy and of like lording it over each other and like the power harassment of senior men to younger men and younger women that sometimes I witnessed. And that the men didn't have the right, even in a, like you're a local civil service, local, you know, town hall, it's not going to be time, it's not going to be like life critical if all of those workers went home at 530. Like, yeah, they have too much work and I appreciate that. But making it privatized onto the backs of those men who have kids and should be able to go watch their kid play t-ball, like my dad did. Yeah. I wanted that for those men, for those Japanese men, right? And so... Having been here and also now as a parent for the last, you know, 10 years in Japan, I just felt we need to also take seriously that you can't just have a womenomic strategy that says we're going to, you know, abracadabra, 3% women target quota in all of these decision-making positions and in the parties and in the, in the, you know, middle and upper management of companies. And abracadabra, because we have a quota, it'll be implemented when we've done nothing institutionally using statecraft, using public policy, and using corporate policies to have the top, top leadership men say to everyone below them, you need to go home and be a parent now. Yeah. It's 5.30. We need you to go home and be a parent now as your civic duty and as showing and role modeling that you know parenting and caregiving is a really valuable skill. It's a part of leadership. It's a part of emotion, building emotional intelligence. It's a part, of, a part of building negotiation skills. Have you ever negotiated with a three-year-old in a supermarket? <laughs> right? You can't just show them your meishi and your business card and say, I outrank you. You have to listen to me. The three-year-old doesn't care. And so depriving all of those Japanese men of that opportunity to have this training ground for emotional intelligence and communications and cross-cultural, you know, interpersonal trust building in a, in a space where your, your business card is not pertinent to the conversation you need. So that family space is a training ground, right? For all of top leadership and senior emotionally intelligent leadership and high performing communication skills in big companies. So I also thought it was so counterproductive for these big companies to extract all of these extra FaceTime hours and deprive those men of a diversity of leadership experiences, both outside the home, inside the home, in their neighborhoods like go be a leader of your taiko group or go be the leader of your choir mm -hmm. go be the leader of your sports team and, and learn team building in a non business card defined yes because all that leadership comes back into your roles and your high performance in your corporate role exactly. and it's a win-win right yeah so i just i just have this just this reminds me of uh 
you know, I learned a lot about this um, from an episode I did with someone, you know, Glenn Wood. Yes. Oh, my episode, goodness. Episode, uh, what Such was that? a... 62. Pioneer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Glenn was someone who, who's working at a, a, a uh, huge company. Yeah. And he dealt with um, power harassment. Of course. Because he was trying to be a good dad. Because he was trying to be a good dad. Like, he, he so wanted disappointing. to take paternity leave and... I mean, it's the womenomics era of Japan. How can that happen, right? And this is the disconnect when we don't realize that you can't just work on fixing women in this unilateral, narrow way. Oh, we need to just give women more, more confidence. Oh, we just need to give women more mentoring. No, we need to actually have an ecosystem that's built with policies and practices that incentivize women and men to show up to be egalitarian and to treat each other with dignity, right? And to solve you know, unhealthy power relationships that kill the creative innovation that those individuals could bring to their companies. You know, one of the things I found fascinating about, or not specifically Glenn's case, but I learned through Glenn's case is that, um, you know, less than six, was it 6% or less of men take paternity leave? Yes. Um, it's such a tragedy. Although it's a right. It's a, It's tragic. They don't use that right. They don't it, feel that they can because the 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 masculinity code. Yeah, so it's like the right? the law says one thing, but the corporate the, the, warrior, the corporate, policy, the corporate, corporate warrior company. mentality, yes, and this exactly. and and in academia we talk about the, the corporate warrior mentality, mm. the salary man reality yeah. that's driven by this corporate warrior masculinity, mm. toxic masculine masculinity model that says that your value as a man is to show up like a soldier for the president of your company. And if that means you work 24 hours a day, you know, that's your lot in life. And you sort of think, we need to solve that piece yeah. and we need to empower. And so what I, you know, I was asked for the Canadian Chamber to do a talk on what I call chichikatsu, okay. uh, father's empowerment. Okay. Because we talk, jose no katsuyaku, jose no katsuyaku. Let's, you know, women's activization. And yeah. I'm saying, well, how about father's activization? Yeah. Can yeah. we get companies to take seriously that the the statecraft in Japan, the public policy is beautiful. We have a like, a paternity leave that is publicly supported, mm -hmm. which a lot of com countries don't have, right? Yeah. And we have a publicly funded daycare system, universal daycare. That's unprecedented. Mm. You don't find that in the United States. Mm -hmm. You don't find that in other G7 countries that say they're advanced democracies. Mm. And so I'm thinking you have this be these beautiful public policy supports for men, mm -hmm. To be able to be engaged fathers and co-parents and to share the household running. And I also talk about this idea, not only of chichi no katsuyaku, like activating, activating, empowering fathers in mm. the household to do their role and to take that leadership role seriously, but in a way that's egalitarian with their partners, right? Mm. So it's a what we call a kyodo daihyoriji. In Japan, you sometimes have a kyodo daihyoriji for organizations, and it means a joint representative director's structure. Mm. And so you have two people who, who share the representation roles for their organization, for the NGO community often is used in Japan or, you know, like not profit, non for profit. Mm -hmm. But that is the model of the household. If you're lucky enough to have a two parent household, be it same sex or different sex, doesn't matter. If you're lucky enough to have that, you know, two parent supporters for children, mm -hmm. which I think we need like an army, right? We need mm. like a whole village to, to raise children. Yeah. And we don't have a village to raise children. We're like narrowing it down to this single unit. And particularly in, in, in the big cities of Japan, people mm. don't live with their shinseki and their relatives anymore. Yeah. So you have these two parents 
But one of those parents is effectively absent most of the time because they're they're the corporate warrior yeah. under the corporate warrior, you know, rigmarole mm-hmm. and don't feel a sense of agency or choice because they don't want to be perceived to not be committed to their work. They don't want to disappoint the bro, the bro, the brotherhood mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then the men above them who expect them to show up and, and put in the hours they put in. And and if they take a paternity leave, they're told that it sends signals that they're not career, they're not focused on career advancement, and they don't want to be written out of career advancement and promotion by virtue of being an active father and you know being engaged and taking paternity leave. So and then when they come back, they they you know power harassed, they're yeah. demoted, you know. So this is a you know this yeah. is a structural issue that I wish Japan would focus on, and I would love to see corporations. I want to work with corporations in solving. How do you work on? Changing masculinity norms and cultures and practices around the exceptionally long work day because mm. it's unhealthy and we know it's not even good for productivity. Mm. <laughs> we know it's not even a, like an indicator of productivity yeah. or innovation. Yeah. How can we solve that piece and sort of get more quality of life for Japanese men and, and foreign men who yeah. are in this ecosystem? And how do we empower then inadvertently those men's spouses mm, mm. to not be single parenting and single-handedly responsible for running the household alone because household running is a full-time job. Yeah. Parenting is a full-time job. Looking after elder parents is a full-time job. Mm. And sometimes Japanese women are doing all three of those. Yeah. And they're yeah. working full-time hours. Yeah. And they're perceived to not be activated. <laughs> And you're thinking they're going to burn out. And yeah. that's what we're also seeing. And so women, of course, and, and, and couples are choosing to have fewer kids because there's no time in the schedule mm. to be a really genuinely healthy, engaged, caregiving parent yeah. under the current sort of working long hours culture. And culture is a product of the corporate policies and the public policies we build. Yeah. It's not innate to Japan. Yeah. It's not actually just a Japan thing, right? Like yep. men working long hours is a, a product of patriarchy yeah. and capitalism that we see worldwide. Yep. It's not unique to Japan. Mm. This is not just a Japan problem. It mm. has particular, you know, it's exacerbated maybe more yeah. in, in extreme ways in Japan. Mm. But it's a challenge that all G7 countries, Canada, United States, New Zealand, Australia, Germany, we've all been working through these challenges of trying to get better quality of life on the whole for workers to be both having multiple identities. And for me, it's like you're allowed to have your dad identity. You're allowed to have your mom identity. You're allowed to have your I'm a creative artist identity and I bring that to work. I'm allowed to, to, you know, be queer and identify as queer at work. I'm allowed all of that, those multiple identities. And I'm allowed to bring all that into my workspace and, and not feel denigrated for any of them Mm, mm, mm. or power harassed for any of them yeah or bullied for any of them and that for me is like the challenge and the goal and the mission for enjoy dni is to say how do we help companies shift change paradigms it's to drive a paradigm shift right that diverse we need a diversity focused strategy as a business strategy that the output is well-being and innovation innovation for the companies profitability sustainability and well-being for the employees. And that's the goal, I think, ultimately. Uh, and so that's for me, that means we show up for men. And men are allies, right? Like men, so many men I've worked with have been such hardcore 
powerful allies for change. And I think if we don't appreciate the diversity of men and men as change agents, we don't do justice to what the promise of democracy is. And it, like, you know, whether you're a male, man, a woman, or non-binary, all of us in democracy are stakeholders in all of this piece together. And we have to see each other in that light to move the dial. Wow. There you have it. Um, you know, I would love to go on and on and on for hours. I, I'm enjoying this conversation, but uh, yeah. Yeah, fortunately we have to wrap it up. But um, um, yeah, with that said, uh, thank you for coming. Um, do you have anything else you want to put out there to the world? Um, well, I wanted to thank you because... Okay. Well, one for this interview. You're such a great interviewer. <laughs> it's oh, so lovely. Um, but also, you, um, I mean, we were very fortunate um, to invite you to uh, be our kickoff um, speaker for the Few Japan virtual brunch we just had on Sunday. Yes, thank and you very much for the invitation. I was, I felt honored. I felt honored. Um, you know, I, I, real quick, I just want to say that, um, you know, Having this quota, um, you know, having this realization and, and, and wanting to have more women voices on the podcast, um, I felt honored to get that invitation from a organization that's about that thing. You know? Yeah. So um, thank you. Well, it's our pleasure. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, Kyoko, actually, who is our special events director and is organizing this virtual brunch, was, was sort of saying... Terrence, he's a really interesting person. We should invite him. And I'm like, yeah, he's a really interesting person. I can attest to that. I, was, I, I you know, he's told me all about his philosophy for his podcast. Definitely, let's bring him. Mm. And and Sabrina said she knows you and yeah. you know was impressed with you. So it was just like a totally good fit. And we've had um, you know men sometimes be featured on our panels for our big flagship flagship events, mm -hmm. like we, you know International March, you know Women's Day in March. And so we have like you know, a panel. So it's like two women and one man. So we sometimes the odd, bring in the odd speaker. But um, aside from those flagship events, we hadn't sort of brought in this idea of, because we were focusing on trying to invite inspiring women speakers to mm. inspire our women's diverse women's community. Right. Mm. And that's makes sense. And that's our primary mandate is really to also inspire our, you know, global minded English speaking, diverse women's community with Look at the kick-ass women out there in Japan, and yeah. and and also sometimes they fly in from different parts of Asia and and are willing to speak for us too. And now we've gone virtual because of COVID nineteen, mm. and so the whole world of different possibilities of speakers opened up. But we hadn't really decided whether we were going to have a space and how we would think about celebrating men as change agents. Mm. And and so many of us on the board felt that that was a great thing to do. Mm. And so when Kyoko sort of suggested you, we were all like, yes, that's mm. great. Let's do that. And um, so it's now allowed us to slowly, because our theme this year is reimagining community mm -hmm. with Few Japan. And so it's nice for us to, I think, through this virtual brunch and then thinking forward, our practice, because we need practices yes. of inclusion. We yes. don't just talk about it. We practice it. Yes. It's this, you know, spotlight on men's leadership idea mm -hmm. concept was born and you kick that off for us now. And so that we can also be featuring men's thought leadership for gender equality and for women's empowerment. And awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So thank thank you, you once again. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for honor. rocking the house on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, anything else? Uh, 
where can people learn more about Enjoy? And... Yes, um, I have a website that's uh, en-joi.com. Um, and there's a hundred thought partners on there, really fascinating people who are diversity positive. And some I know, some yeah. of whom have been on a podcast. Yes, so, yeah. lots of them and, and supporting women's leadership. So it's just trying to make visible this space of leaders across different um, industries and sectors in Japan and mm. APAC, really, yeah. Asia Pacific, who are showing up for diversity and think it's just a so obvious that diversity is good for our society and for democracy and for innovation. And so that that's there. And I'd love to encourage people to check out those group of amazing people. Um, and I'm building a team of now we have about seven uh, consultants and practitioners and people who will be supporting Enjoy to develop some diversity, equity, innovation, um, online foundations courses for people who want to build their own education and literacy, be they in corporate or NGOs or wherever they are in the world, in both English and in Japanese. Wow. So that's going to be fun. And that's sort of I'm in content building right now. So stay tuned for that. And of course, um, uh, we do workshops. We do workshops on how to build innovation through intersectional thinking and uh, allyship and solidarity building. So for, for people who are looking for workshops on those kinds of paradigm shift, uh, yeah, we're so excited to deliver that in English, Japanese, and even French. Whoa. So, yeah. What a way to Get kick off touch. 2021, the Tokyo Speaks. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. I'm sure we'll be in touch and then we'll be, you know, collaborating more yes. in the future. Um, if you... Uh, yeah, if you're new, you don't know how to follow us. We're pretty much everywhere. Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, just Google Tokyo Speaks. Um, I'm now releasing episodes every, uh, not every Wednesday, but on Wednesdays, every other Wednesday. And I'm going to try, I'm going to try to keep up with uh, this every other Wednesday schedule. But uh, just keep in mind, COVID is out there and there's yeah. been some, there's been a state of emergency here in Japan. Yeah, so, stay you safe, know, everyone. Stay safe, everyone. Um, that's it. Thank you, Darren. Yes, follow Tokyo Speaks on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you. Thank you.